We've been talking about these last three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, the last of Mark's story. We talked about the sadness regarding Judas, the supper, uh, his seizure in the garden. Uh, Jesus' trial was a sham. Peter had some shame. He was shunned. And then last week, we talked about his suffering. Now, we begin tonight by talking about Jesus' slumber. Jesus' slumber, Mark 15, verse 37. Mark 15, verse 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. He only got one word wrong there. Not was, still is. But that's the best he knew. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. When he knew it, knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone into the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. Father, help us as we uh, maybe tonight finish up your gospel. Lord, may we glean from it exactly what we need tonight. May we be reminded of the precious and unfathomable gift, gift that Jesus gave us. And may we live at least as best we can worthy of it. Would you speak to our hearts tonight? Would you help me to preach and teach in a way that most pleases you? And I'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. His slumber. Now, yeah, I was trying to keep the alliteration, the letter S and everything, but slumber is a really good word for this. Why? Because when you're asleep, you eventually wake up. It's not a permanent thing. Jesus' death was not permanent. He was sleeping. Now, physically dead, absolutely. But he woke up. It was temporary, and we're thankful for that. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at the manner of his slumber, the manner of his slumber. What's some interesting things about it, about his death in particular? Look at verse 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Jesus died as no one else ever has. And as no one else ever could. Now, there are a lot of things you could die from in crucifixion. Let me give you about five or six. You could die from dehydration. You could die from shock. You could die from blood loss. You could die from exposure. You could die from asphyxiation. You could die from congestive heart failure. And that's just to name a few. A lot of ways to die from crucifixion. Jesus died of none of these. Now, were these things pressed upon his body? Sure. 
Did he experience blood loss? Yep. Did he, did he have to battle asphyxiation? Sure. But of what did Jesus ultimately die? He's the only person to ever die like this. He died of his own word. He dismissed his spirit. Now, I didn't say he died of his own hand. You can, tragically, use some kind of a stimulus upon your body that causes your life to end. But that's not what happened here. He didn't die by his hand. He died by his word. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Luke 23, 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. John 19, 30, when Jesus therefore received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. If Jesus had a death certificate, he doesn't, but if he did, his cause of death would be he dismissed his spirit. Try it. Can't do it. What, what does this tell us? Even in his death, all the way through this process, from the beginning of time, even in his death, Jesus remained completely in control. Completely. We see the manner of his slumber. Number two, we see the miracles that were surrounding his slumber. Verse 38, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he had so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, time does not permit us to get too deep into this. But at the time surrounding the time of Jesus' death, there were four apparent miracles and potentially two spiritual ones. Okay? What are we talking about? First of all, According to verse 33, there was darkness over the land. That was not a natural phenomenon. That was not an eclipse. That was not some kind of pollution that covered the sun. There was darkness over the land. I read, and when I was going back and restudying this, I read something today, just today, that there is an argument for the usage of that word land that it could be the entire earth. I doubt it because there's not a whole lot of evidence of historical you know, you know, the darkness over the whole earth, but it could have been. But certainly, certainly over Israel. That's another one miracle. Second one, verse 38, the temple veil was rent from top to bottom. That's a miracle. A third one, Matthew 27, 51 tells us there was a great earthquake. That's a miracle. The fourth one, this is where we'd like to spend some time, but we're not. Matthew 27, 52 and 53, the reanimation of dead saints. Notice I said reanimation, not resurrection. There's difference. There's difference. Who's the first fruits of the resurrection? Jesus. Jesus. That's the four parent miracles. By the way, how do you feel if you're sitting in your house and all of a sudden Uncle Lester, who's long been dead, comes walking in? How do you feel about that? But can I give you two spiritual miracles? How about Luke 23, that thief on one side of Jesus that got saved? That's a miracle, just like it's a miracle anytime, anytime somebody gets saved. Let me give you one more. It looks very likely that the centurion and perhaps those that were with him 
according to Matthew 27, came to Christ. That's a miracle. So we got six miracles taking place around his death. See. We see the manner of his slumber, the miracles of his slumber. How about this? Some messengers regarding his slumber. It's at this time that God begins to assemble some people that are going to be the first messengers about what's going on. Look at verse 40. There were also women looking afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and and of Joseph and Salome, who also when he was in Galilee followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up unto him, came up with him rather, unto Jerusalem. We'll look at verse 47 in just a minute. There was a list of women who were there when Jesus died. Now, if you read each gospel, you'll see that list varies a little bit. That's not a contradiction. That's a supplement. You put all of those together, and you find out, first of all, who was where when. Okay? There's, there's different time periods going on here. This is not a contradiction. It just paints you a whole picture, and you harmonize the, these gospels, and you see the whole story. We'll not do that for time's sake tonight. It's simply explained by different people came and went at different times, but there's five points I want to make about these ladies. Number one, these women were with Jesus when 10 out of the 11 remaining disciples were not. Now, let me give you a little bit of backstory here. Right now, it seems that conservative evangelical Christianity is getting thumped more than it ever has before, perhaps, about this idea of ordaining women to be pastors. And the narrative is being presented that if you don't believe the Bible allows that, that you're anti-woman and you think women don't serve any purpose in the church and all of that kind of thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is clear about that subject. But does that mean that, that women, women sit quietly on the sidelines and don't serve any kind of purpose in the church? That is absolute hogwash. And I think it needs to be made clear that God has his hand on women in a multitude of ways to use for his glory. They were there with Jesus when 10 out of the 11 disciples were not. At least two, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw the location of his burial. Look at verse 47. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. So when somebody rolls up with what's called the wrong tomb theory, that they went to the wrong tomb, well, there's a problem with that because verse 47 debunks that. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where they buried him. Not for nothing, seems to me the guy that owned the tomb knew where his tomb was too. Anybody in here that has a house, you know how to get home, don't you? And the tomb wasn't nearly as far away from Golgotha as our homes are. I don't think the tomb was as far away from Golgotha as where the Davies live is from here. I think they were very close. Number three, these ladies fulfill God's expectation of two to three witnesses to establish testimony, according to Deuteronomy 19. Number four, God is rejecting the mindset of that current Jewish law that refused to acknowledge the testimony of women by allowing them the honor of being the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Who's the first people to give the completed gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? These women. Number five, 
God is gracious in blessing them with this opportunity to report the resurrection of Christ in spite of their lack of faith in said resurrection. Why would I say that they lack faith in regards to his resurrection? Because they were on their way to anoint a body they should have known wasn't going to be there. Now, there is one lady in particular that apparently did believe him who wasn't there. Her name was Mary of Bethany. She anointed him for his burial long before he died. So these messengers, these ladies, are pivotal in the story. Now, let's talk a little bit about the mausoleum, his tomb. Verse 42. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, you know, Friday evening, wrong. You can believe Friday evening if you wish. I'm a Wednesday evening guy myself. But the Sabbath Saturday, not the high Sabbath. That was silly. I shouldn't even stop there. But anyway, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. See, people that were crucified sometimes hung up there for days. Pilate was surprised six hours and he's gone. Calling on him, the centurion asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew of it, of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. We don't know a whole lot about Joseph of Arimathea, but let me tell you what we do know. We do know that he was in the Sanhedrin. That's what it means in verse 43 when it says he was a counselor. We know according to Matthew 27, he was rich. We know according to Matthew 27, he owned the tomb. We know according to Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, he was a believer. And we know according to Luke 23 that he did not consent to Jesus' conviction. So the only thing that we can come up with is they had this meeting without him there. What do we know about the tomb? That Joseph was its owner. We know according to John 19 that it was near the crucifixion site and that it was located in a garden. <laughs> Isn't that something? What got messed up in a garden got fixed in a garden. We know that it was hewn out of a rock. We know that it had never been used before according to John 19. Now, let me explain that real quick. This doesn't just mean that it, nobody had ever been in it before. It means that, see, what they would do is if you had a nice tomb, and let's say you had four slabs in that tomb, you would put bodies in there, and when they had decomposed to the point of bones, you'd go back in there, and you'd collect those bones, and you'd put them in a smaller box called an ossuary. And so you'd be in an ossuary, and then they had room for another body to come in. Well, this had not taken place with this tomb. Nobody had ever been in this tomb. It's not like it was empty at that point. Nobody had ever been in this tomb. And I, I got to believe, I can't say this for sure, but I got to believe nobody was in there afterwards either. I can't imagine they'd ever put anybody. Knowing what happened in that tomb, I think Joseph probably retired that tomb. This tomb was a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. 
See, poor people didn't own these kind of tombs. Rich people did. We know from John 19 that Nicodemus assisted in the burials. We've talked about the mausoleum. Now, let's talk about God's mastery over his slumber. Nothing about Jesus' death was random. Every aspect of this puts God's sovereignty on display. God was sovereign over how Jesus died. He was sovereign over where he was buried. He was sovereign over who witnessed the burial. He was sovereign over how Jesus' body was secured. He was in control at every point during the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's mastery over his slumber. And then finally, Jesus' mission while he slumbered. What? Yep. Jesus, though not physically, was active while dead. It's not quite the same thing, but can I tell you, your loved ones that are in heaven, they're active even though they're dead. They're active. And so was Jesus. Here's what we know he did. We know that while he, was, while he slumbered, he declared. Hold your place here and go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18. Now, I'm not going to get into the different theories over what's actually being said here. This is one of the most debated, <laughs> this is one of the most debated passages. In fact, I've got a set of commentaries in my study called the pulpit commentary. Honestly, I rarely use them, and here's why. They look really good on the shelf, but I rarely use them. And here's why. For this one passage, there are 24 different explanations for what's being said here. 24. That's not helpful at all. I need somebody to dogmatically tell me what's going on here. And they refuse to do it. So we're going to read it, give a few thoughts, keep going. All right? He declared, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also hath also also whew, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And we could stop right there and just have a sermon, couldn't we? Being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. What's he doing while he's dead? He's preaching. He's declaring. Now, it's important to understand this is not the word for preach that means to evangelize. He's not giving anybody the gospel. Nobody's getting saved from what he's saying. He's declaring, he's proclaiming the truth about himself. Now, who are the spirits in prison? Some people say that that's, that's saved people that are yet in Sheol, in the paradise side of, 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 of Hades, before the gulf is overtaken and hell hath enlarged herself and all of that. That is possible, because he does say he'll go to paradise. You'll be with me in paradise, but... 
I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is a very, because spirits in the New Testament, as best I can tell, spirits are never used to refer to people. They're used to refer to evil spirits. Now, some say these are the spirits that were there during the time of Noah. We tie into the Nephilim and all that kind of thing. I'm not getting into all that. Go see Brother Earl. He'll get you all squared away on that. Whoever his audience is, this is one big, fat, sanctified, I told you so. I did what I came here to do. Because you got to think, if word gets to these evil spirits that Jesus, the Son of God, is dead, they might be celebrating. Jesus corrects that, doesn't he? You've got no reason to celebrate. Your boss is a defeated foe. I crushed his head today. He doesn't know it yet, but I sure did. We'll stop there. There's a lot more we could talk about that. And at some point, he declared, but at some point, and this is a little more sketch as far as my timing on it. At some point, he delivered. Ephesians 4, verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, but what is it, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. At some point, Jesus delivers some people. He's active. All right, that's his, that's his slumber. Now, this is our break point. We can stop now. We can extend Mark into another week. And because I've already got this message done, you can keep me from studying this all week. Okay. Or we can keep going. I kind of want to keep going if I'm honest with you. I want to talk about the sunrise. What do you think? Okay. If, you don't, if, you're, if you're opposed, I don't know. Play a game on your phone, something, I don't know. All right, so let's look at chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, what a great phrase, because we're not just talking about it's come and gone. It's past. From this point, the Sabbath and the whole concept thereof, the law, is in the past. Still useful, it's a schoolmaster, but nobody's under it anymore. It's gone. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning during the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. They said among themselves, who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? I got the hiccups, forgive me. And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. He saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him, and as, as they mourned and wept, 
And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Now, when you take all four Gospels and put them together, you, you supplement a good deal. You know which women came when. You know that it was, there was actually two angels there, but one of them spoke. We hear about Peter and John running to the tomb. I love it. John beats Peter there. He's probably younger, better shape. John beats Peter there, but Peter, when he gets there, blows right past John straight into the tomb. Kind of fits Peter. We hear the story about the guards that were guarding the tomb. Let's just say that it was a frightening affair for them. But for time's sake, we're going to stay with Mark's account tonight, even though there's a whole lot more going on. So let's, let's answer some questions. First of all, in verse number one, why were they there? Why did they come? They came to bring spices that they might come and anoint him. This was typical. Um, they didn't do embalming. They were in the Middle East. It's hot. Um, and the best you can do is mask the odor of decomposition. It was not uncommon to, to pile as much as 100 to 150 pounds of spices on top of a body, which, by the way, further, further debunks the idea that Jesus didn't really die. He went into a swoon, and then he woke up in the tomb and realized, hey, I'm in a tomb, and somehow he got out of all the wrappings and pushed off 150 pounds of spices, opened the door, and walked out in a crucified body. Right. That's foolishness. A whole lot easier for me to believe he rose from the dead like he said he would. Why were they there? They were there to anoint a body that they should have known wasn't going to be there. Then, second one, verse 2, when were they there? They were there at the rising of the sun, according to verse 2. In fact, it even says elsewhere that it was still dark when they got there. Jesus was already gone. That's why sunrise services at the break of dawn are a little bit late. A little bit late. What do they see? Verse 3. Said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in long white. Sorry. Clothed in. Uh, my watch scared me. I'm sorry. I'm still getting used to it. Clothed in long white garment, and they were affrighted. He saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You see Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. What did they see? They saw an empty tomb with two angels, one of whom is speaking, telling them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? That's what they see. What were they told? They were told in verses 6 and 7, He's not here. He's risen. Go tell his disciples. Don't miss this, especially Peter. Especially Peter. So what did they do? Verses 8 through 11. They went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told him that, and told them that it had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had not been seen of her, believed not. So what did they do? They did what he said to do. They went out and told people, and they weren't believed. Now, 
The resurrection of Christ merits us spending hours and hours talking about it. But what's interesting is in all four of the Gospels, just like with the crucifixion, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail about it. He died and he rose again. In fact, there's much more about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Whole chapters about it. And so I almost feel like I'm cheating you, but the sunrise is a very matter-of-fact event, and it didn't take long. In a moment, Jesus goes from dead to alive in a glorified body that, by the way, we're going to have one just like him. They rolled away the stone, not for so he could get out, but so others could get in. Jesus could pass through solid objects, and our glorified body will be able to as well. We'll be able to disappear and reappear at will. That's going to come in handy because heaven alone is 1,500 miles square. So if Brother Hensley lives on the other side of heaven, that's as far as New York to Denver. If I want to go see him, that's a long walk. So literally, I'll pop in. Should I text him first, tell him I'm coming? No, because there won't be cell phones in heaven. How could it be heaven with those things? People bumping into angels because they got their face in their phone. I just don't think that's going to be the case. So as much as I want to spend some time on the resurrection, the Bible gives us just that. So we'll save the resurrection for its own message. Now, I want to talk to you about something that uh, is sad to me. Some of you may have encountered this in your own study. I changed the last one. The last one was supposed to be was supposed to be our service, and I changed it to a much more catchy conclusion. But before we go there, if you look in your Bible, in fact, if you have a study Bible, it may actually say this in it. A lot of people, a lot of theologians and students of Scripture have concluded that verses 9 through 20 shouldn't be there. And their reasoning is because in some of the early manuscripts, it's not there. Now, I am not going to get into a whole King James diatribe tonight, okay? I've always been on the record as being a King James guy. I'm not mad at people that aren't. I believe you can use other translations and love the Lord and serve him. I'm not getting into all that. I will say this. There's some translations that are just no good. They're just not well done. Okay. I believe the King James is, is, is the best translation for English-speaking people, but I know of people that feel differently, that love the Lord as much or more than I do, and I'm not going to war over it. I just don't have time. There's bigger fish to fry. But I do believe this. I do believe that we need to look critically at that kind of reasoning because it does have a lot. If, if we've got an entire section of the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 through 20, that it's not supposed to be there, boy, that leaves out a lot. But it's not in some of the early manuscripts you understand that something that's early doesn't mean that it's more accurate. But they're older. 
I thank the Lord for the wisdom of older people and the experience of older people. But just because somebody's old doesn't mean they're right. Hmm? Our president's pretty old. And he's rarely right. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just saying, I'm 48 now. I'm getting there. I know some of y'all look at me, you're still a kid. Well, I don't feel like a kid. But I can tell you, there's some areas of my life, the older I get, the wronger I get. And I'm just, I'm just a hair away from get off my lawn status, you know. Just get something older. One of these, one of these codexes, these, these manuscripts upon which some of the other translations are based, one of them was found in a pile of stuff that was about to be burned. Strikes me as that's not terribly reliable. But even so, and I'm telling you, there's some guys I really respect that say that 9 through 20 shouldn't be there, but they're helpful, kind of like the Apocrypha. (laughs) But they're not inspired. Well, here's how I see it, y'all. Whether you've got the King James, the New King James, New American Standard, Legacy Standard Bible, ESV, whatever. You've got to be able to look at this book and say, I've either got the Word of God or I don't. And if I've got the Word of God, do I have all of it? And is there any parts of it that isn't the Word of God? And if that's true, then which parts of it aren't? I just It seems to me to be a whole lot simpler to believe that God gave me His completed Word in this form, Genesis to Revelation. I've got it. And that's how I choose to live. I believe with all of my heart that verses 9 through 20 are as inspired as the rest of the book, should be there, and have been rightly included. But, but, Andy, they are markedly different from the The writing style, it's kind of weird the way it's, the way it's tacked on there. It almost seems to be parenthetical. All that's true. So it seems to me that Some Christian later on added this to explain that last chapter. Nope. But it's not written in Mark's style. Okay. Who had a heavy hand in Mark? Peter. Is it out of the realm of possibility that as Mark completed what God told him to write, God told Peter, add this. To believe that doesn't doesn't hurt the inspiration of Scripture. The book of Psalms has got several different writers. The book of Proverbs has several different writers. If Mark has Peter tack on something on the end, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just saying it's all supposed to be there. I believe that. So, you know, with all due respect to some guys that I really respect, If you want to stop at verse 8, fine, go ahead. I'm going to keep on going. Because the last section is our conclusion, verses 12 through 20. First of all, we see Jesus' encounters in 12 through 14. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. That's almost certainly talking about those on the road to Emmaus, uh, Luke 24. Um, He goes on, uh, let's see, verse... uh, 
13, they went and told it under the residue. <laughs> I love that he calls these people residue. Neither believe they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their, for the, with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not that which, which had seen him, them which had seen him after he was risen. Paul sums up these encounters nicely. Let me, let me just give you Paul's summary. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, now that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now watch this, verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. According to Deuteronomy 19, how many witnesses do you have to have for something to be considered true? Two. According to American Jewish jurisprudence, how many witnesses do you have to have? A witness and a corroborating witness. That's two. How many witnesses did Jesus have of his resurrection between the time of his resurrection and his ascension? Based on my math here, no fewer than 514 people saw the resurrected Christ. Almost certainly more than that, but no fewer than 514 people. So he had some encounters. Then Jesus left us with an edict, a command, verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We call this the Great Commission. It appears no less than five times. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came, spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Luke 24, verse 45. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these Things. John 20, verse 21, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And then the last thing he said before he left, Acts 1, verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus' edict. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. It's a command that we are to be witnesses to everyone we possibly can. Then we see in verses 16 through 18, Jesus' empowerment. His empowerment. Look at verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Uh-oh. We'll come back to that. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name, Shall they cast out devils? They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if any drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Jesus empowered them to do some things. So, 
Where's our snake box? Forgive my grammar, Mrs. Collins. We ain't got one. You ever heard the story of Wendy Bagwell and the Sunlighters were out singing, and they they booked a, a singing in a church that apparently was a snake handling church? Now, I come from the Richmond, Central Virginia area. I don't know of any snake handling churches there, but I know for a fact there's some of them around here. Some of y'all might be related to some of those people. I don't know. Everybody's gotten quiet on me. Are y'all snake handlers? And I didn't know it. But Wendy Bagwell and the Sunlighters, they were singing in a church. And they said, uh, said things got going about that time. Preacher went back there and opened a box and come out with a copperhead in one hand and a rattlesnake in the other. Carrying on, dancing, speaking in tongues and whatnot. And Wendy Bagwell says he leaned over to one of the guys sitting on the platform with him. He said, where's your back door? He said, we don't have one. He said, where do you want one? <laughs> this is where they take that from. It's, it's a misunderstanding of Mark chapter 16. First of all, let's start with the baptismal regeneration thing, okay? Notice the wording. Most of our confusion about Scripture can be solved if we just read carefully. Look what it says. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But... That, that, that coordinating conjunction shifts it. it. It signals a contrast. And so what is said next is supposed to be the opposite. If, if this is what he's saying, that to be saved you've got to believe and be baptized, then it should say, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. That's what it should say, but that's not what it says. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned, and these signs shall follow them that believe. Notice in the latter part of verse 16 and verse number 17, all it talks about is belief. It does not mention baptism again. So when you take that and compare it with the whole of Scripture, that it makes it clear that by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is no room for baptism in the salvation experience. It is belief alone okay let's keep going these signs shall follow them that believe in my name shall they cast out devils they shall speak with new tongues they shall take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Is there anything in verse 18? Now, verse 17, we understand is sign gifts, and those things faded away. They, were, they went away with the completed word of God, and we've, we've talked about that before. But let's talk specifically about the serpents and the drinking poison, because this is the only place that says it. Read the verse again. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. There's nothing in the language there that suggests that they did so intentionally. Take up does not necessarily mean they grabbed it. It means they came up with a snake. Who do we think of when we hear that? Who do we think of? We think of Paul. Acts 28.3 When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. He didn't grab it. It came up with him. 
he took up a deadly serpent, a viper. When the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt, this man is a murderer whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Drinking poison. Is it reasonable to conclude that people that were against the Christians would try to kill them using poison from time to time? Sure. He's not telling the disciples, go out, buy you some strychnine, and have at it. He's not saying that. He's saying if you are poisoned, you're going to be all right. But again, that was for that portion of the church age. It was during the time of the apostles. It was during the time of the sign gifts. There is nothing. This is, once again, this is meant to be what's called... um, This is not direction. It's not telling us to do this. It's giving us information about what happened. So for those reasons and more, I don't care how hard you push me, I'm not drinking strychnine, and I'm not taking up serpents. I don't mind non-venomous serpents. I don't mind playing around with them. But I'm not going to do it in here. You know. So he gave them power. That was a book and not a kid, right? Good. Could care less about the book. Just want to make sure everybody's hurt. All right. Verse 19. Man, this seems so blasé because it's such a wonderful thing, but next we see Jesus' exit. He leaves. Verse 19. So now after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. He's still there. He hasn't moved. He's still there. The only movement we see in Jesus is, I believe, when a saint dies, Jesus stands. A couple reasons I believe that. First of all, first person you see in heaven is Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Second of all, what did Stephen see as they were stoning him? He saw the Lord standing. He left. But he left, leaving in expectation, verse 20. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following, amen. Jesus said, this is what I want you to do, and he left with the expectation that they did it. Now, what Mark doesn't tell us between verses 19 and 20 is they didn't initially do that. He said, go into all the world. And what did they do? They hung out in Jerusalem. They hung out in that region. So what did he use to spread them out? Persecution. Now, I told you to get. If you're not going to do it on your own, then I'm going to help you. Persecution. Spread them out. But they fulfilled his expectation. And we're to be fulfilling his expectation. And we say as Mark did at the end of his gospel, amen. And we have finished the gospel of Mark for now.